Fun Fact Enterprises, this is Alan. How may I direct your call? You called me. The call is coming from inside the fact. <laughs> Fun fact. In a certain sense, 10 Things I Hate About You was correct. You can be whelmed in Europe. <laughs> okay. I, I, <laughs> I, have, I have not seen that movie since like it came out. Yeah. So as you may or may not remember, sounds like you definitely do, uh, that there, there was a moment in the film when the, 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 the point was made that one could be underwhelmed and one could be overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. But the question was asked, can you ever be just whelmed? Yeah, which is a reasonable thing to ask. It's one of these like arc history of English type questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely back on history of English corner. Mm-hmm. But the response in the film, it's very new. It's, it's right at the beginning of the film. And the response by actress Larissa Olenek was that she thought you could in Europe. Right, which is, which is just kind of a good teen movie quip to make yeah it's a great quip yeah i think i think they allow that in europe yeah it's also true Hmm, okay so so while we don't really use it today whelm was a common term in middle english Hmm. Hmm. just when you really wanted to convey that you were just neutral neither well yeah so what is that what you think is that what you think well probably meant what do you think well meant i i think okay so overwhelm means that there's so much stuff going on you can't handle it and underwhelm means you're bored so i think they would probably be frequently using this to communicate that they're appropriately busy and occupied and then just you know maybe in sort of like a managerial sense like if they're doing sprint planning or something and they were trying to figure out <laughs> who's going to do what in the, in the 1400s yeah in the 14 like the peasant doing the sprint planning doing their board and figuring out what task allocation <laughs> Kanban they want board. yeah then it would be like well i'm whelmed just everyone if anyone's not whelmed let me know we'll get you yeah oh you're whelmed here's some more work yeah because if we're all really busy if anyone's just whelmed you're not doing then, it. Yeah, you got to pull your weight, but you want to try and yeah. make it so that sustainable pace would be that people are whelmed most of the time. Everyone should be. Oh, I see. So in a bad office, they would be like, oh, you're whelmed? Get this this dude some more work. But in a good office environment, they'd be like, oh, every, is everyone not is anyone not whelmed? We need to help you out. Yeah, except that instead of office, it would be like surf the fields, surf yeah. driven farming commune. Yeah, yeah, I like surf. I like the idea of surfs doing some sprint planning. <laughs> I think that's that's a fun image. Anyway, no, <laughs> it, did, it did not mean any of those things. Uh, it meant to turn upside down. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, you know, if you, if you whelmed or, or something got whelmed, you know, turn it upside down. So in, in the early 1400s, over was added to the beginning, which created the word overwhelm. Which means it got turned upside down too much. Well, no. So at that time, it was actually specifically a nautical term. Okay. It, it was first introduced to English in the naval accounts of the reign of King Henry the Seventh, mm. the first Tudor king, the end of the War of the Roses period. But the word meant that a boat had been overturned by a wave. Okay. So, so whelm meant that it was overturned by a wave or overwhelm? No. So overwhelm meant that the wave washed over the boat and caused it to whelm. Ah, okay. So it got whelmed, turns upside down, by the wave going over it. Over it. Okay. So it wasn't too whelmed. It was whelmed by over it. That's right. Okay. So so given that this word came originally from Middle English, which comes from England. 
So I've and heard England is Brexit notwithstanding in Europe. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can indeed be whelmed in Europe. As long as you are in the 1600s or 1500s. No, you could do it now. It's a word from England. Right. Okay. 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 Yeah. Of course, you can also be whelmed in North America, which brought English along, but that's not what the film was asking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those, I think you can in Europe, as long as it's true that you can in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it could you, be true you, elsewhere. You can. I, incidentally, the character Larissa Olenek was playing, if you don't remember the film really well, her name was Bianca Stratford. Okay. And that's because... I don't know if you know this, but 10 Things I Hate About You is actually a remake of the Shakespearean play The Taming of the Shrew. Yes. And I find that fascinating. It's it's part of a long history of teen dramas that are veiled adaptations of Shakespeare plays. Yeah, which is kind of a weird combo, but then... It, I love it. Yeah. And, I, and so I, I, I wanted to remi- remember some of the other, the greats of that era. Because I don't know, that era seems to have been just chock full. So uh, did you ever see the movie Get Over It? No. It was is with Kirsten Dunst and Cisco. <laughs> okay, and it's uh, it was a remake of A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Okay, uh, did you ever see She's the Man? No, I think I may have seen fewer teen movies than you. <laughs> yeah, clearly, I went through a phase where I was really into to teen movies. I was a teen at the time, so that might have been like correlated, yeah. inappropriate. But uh, She's the Man, I was definitely not a teen for. It came out in two thousand six. But it it's with Amanda Bynes and Channing Tatum. Okay. And it's a remake of uh, Twelfth Night. Right. Uh, o, also with Julia yeah, Stiles. Yeah, that one. I didn't, remake of Othello. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was more like... Uh, more directly adapted. Direct, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then how about West Side Story? Oh, what's West Side Story basically? It's a remake of Romeo and Juliet. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I never thought about it. Hmm. Yeah, there's many, many others of these, by the way. You can get into like the really obvious ones like Romeo plus Juliet with, you know, Claire Danes. And uh, what's that an adaptation of (laughs) Twelfth Night? Also, Twelfth. Okay, right. Yeah. Common or like just one of the guys and those kind of things. But, you know, there's a lot of these I I, teen, you know, really Shakespeare was the teen drama writer of his day. When I was a teenager, Mm. I never bought in to a lot of the. A lot of almost any of the ideas of what masculinity was supposed to be the whole idea healthy. before there was a term toxic masculinity that i had been exposed to as soon as i heard that term i'm like yes okay great i'm on board with yeah. this this is a problem but one thing i did kind of pick up is this idea that like oh well move, movies about teenagers in romantic contexts are uh just not for me oh Alan. um that like okay well girls would be into those and then i wouldn't oh. and then and then one day I broke up with my high school girlfriend and I was sad. And then my stepmom was like, you need to watch Titanic. And I'm like, oh, I've never seen Titanic. And she's like, you have to watch Titanic. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I feel so pathetic right now. I'm just going to like go with the flow and I'm going to watch this. And And I obsessed. And I cried. It was like, it was like after (laughs) it was in the theater. Like it was so, I was like, right. But I was crying and I was like, this is so beautiful. (laughs) And then it like changed everything for me. So that's awesome. Yeah. No, I am a lover. I I used to have a a Freddie Prince Jr. collection Mm. of, you know, DVDs and such and big Julia Styles. I just, I like teen dramas they, they there's an uncomplicated complexity to them that i i enjoy i mean i don't i haven't kept up but the that era i was i was way way into did you watch never have i ever no i think that's a uh the name of it it was a mindy Kaling. it's on this uh streaming service uh <clears throat> netflix um, i haven't heard of it it's a is, it's a, a quite, service 
yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's got a bunch of stuff like this. Oh, um, yeah, cool. And I, I, w- I think it was last year that it came out and Karen and I watched that and like, I w- was getting back into, and there's a couple other relatively recent, like teen, relatively short run series um, that, uh, that I've enjoyed. So it's like a genre I'm like now, now picking up the modern versions of it rather than. There were so many great, like random short lived teen TV shows. Mm-hmm. There's one called Opposite Sex, which had the kid from, uh, oh, the Milo Ventimiglia from, uh, among other things, Gilmore Girls. Oh, okay. And Heroes. Yeah. I think he's yeah. probably mostly known for Heroes. I feel like... We're so off topic now. But. <laughs> well, I feel like we've gotten... It's like the, the map of where this episode is. <laughs> I expected it to go or what we... Had, yeah. It's like on one hand, I could just keep naming team dramas, but also on the other hand, maybe I should have a fact i should maybe, maybe yeah share oh fact. is this fun fact uh no i thought this was just the our chatting about teen drama call yeah, yeah. Uh, like we do twice a week yeah twice a week yeah yeah i don't know how we did it that many times and i never admitted that thing that i'd never seen any team dramas when i was a teen <laughs> but it just came out this time it is weird yeah i guess i did most of the talking previously um so i have i have a, a car fact huh that doesn't seem history of english related no i don't have much of a transition although i guess i'm starting to develop a little bit of a car corner i'm not a huge car nut but i find them interesting um so uh, this kind of goes back to ever since i was a kid um my mom was always into classic cars um and like would always point out certain ones or ones that she cared about when she was a kid or whatever so i always kind of had a background interest in in classic cars and um, as you may or may not know, in different jurisdictions, what makes for a classic car is differently defined. So in some places, hmm. it's a 20 year old uh, car or older um, that is in substantially in original condition, can be registered okay. as a, a classic car. And, but in Canada, um, they use the stricter limit of it has to be at least 25 years old. Okay, so is that 1995? <laughs> 1996 is that the year that we're saying is classic right now so that brings me to my fun fact okay (laughs) next year you will be able to register for those old-timey classic car plates a 1997 toyota prius (laughs) classic car as long as you have restored it to original condition as per your jurisdiction so the 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 1997 toyota prius was the first gen prius the very very first gen is like definitely before it was common it actually the 1997 you would have to like get it from japan um but they it was the first prius it was the first you know sort of modern hybrid electric vehicle and uh and and there's a bit bit of the sense when you think of a classic car you think of like oh well you know it should be a certain kind of car but it doesn't say classic none of the regulations say the classic car needs to be you know like a muscle car or anything it just says it has to be historically relevant but definitely historically extremely historically relevant vehicle the the prius you know the debut in um, again of modern times i mean the ev1 would be more clearly for sure um i guess important in terms of being like first electric car but the, the original prius i would say I feel like would would be a, a potential. I don't know how valuable it would be as a collector. I don't know if it would be the kind of car you'd want to drive around, but it would be well registerable. So, uh, fun fact: I owned a Gen One Toyota Prius. Really? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> and it was my daily driving car for a bunch of years, and uh-huh. uh, I hated that car. <laughs> like it was so 
unreliable. Mm-hmm. So I had it in like the the like the sea foamy blue green. Oh yeah. Thing. yeah, and man, I hated that card. Like it was I twice I had the entire drive train system had to be replaced because of a fifty cent sensor that died. Mm. Both times Toyota denied it was a chronic problem, and I paid. I, it was like sixteen hundred dollars to fix Ugh. it. Like it. It had a problem, and what would happen is the steering wheel would get locked while I was turning it, mm-hmm. and like it almost caused me to drive off a cliff one time. That's pretty bad. Yeah, I came within you know inches of of, of driving off a cliff, and it, it just was a very unsafe, very uh, crappy car. But I will say this: it 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 got pretty good gas mileage for the era. Although pretty good was like thirty something gallons a, a, a mile, uh, you know, miles a gallon, which is really not that great. Uh, but for the era, it was it was pretty good. Yeah, and yeah. so it's oh, common yeah. that like people then have a, a nostalgic. Th- they think back to those cars they had years ago, I don't. I don't and they have think, that. "Oh man, that oh, those are the days." Like my mom no. would think back to the Mm-mm. 1969 Ford Falcon that she always wanted, but then her dad sold it just before she got her license. So you're you're compelled by my suggestion of getting an original Prius and putting collector plates on it. No, no. I owned a second generation Prius as well. And I also did not like that car. I feel like maybe there's some (laughs) bad decisions going on here at this point. No, in both cases, they were, uh, I I got them from family members. Ah, I see. see. uh, For, uh, you know, the the amount of money I could afford. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I'm just not a Prius guy, I didn't think. There's someone out there, though. I do have a a fondness for old cars uh, that are not like like i used to have the the next car i had after the or no sorry the car i had right before the first gen prius was an 88 volvo oh, okay yeah like really boxy mm-hmm. and i loved that car and i would consider trying to find another one of those like that was such a fun car i loved it so much yeah it's well past 25 years now so in california oh, that's you a, could that's get a it classic registered yeah as a the their term is historical vehicle and you can get special plates that say historical vehicle again it needs to be an original condition you'd have to get it like the paint i would done get restored yeah get yeah. restored to its original to its glory, glory i think is the word that one would use for that car yeah some other cars from 1997 you could get historical vehicle mm. plates for uh the dodge durango and uh <laughs> honda crv Man, the first CRV <laughs> I actually like more than the current CRV. Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was smaller. Like the current CRV is not a cool car. I don't. I mean, was the original one cool? Cooler. Like it has a. It actually that ninety seven. I'm looking at pictures of it. It it has like a style to it that I I kind of like enjoy. And I could imagine like you know what it is. It's like the first car that you get as a teenager. It, well past nineteen ninety seven. Like in 2010. Yeah. And then you kind of fall in love with it and you do have that nostalgia because it has that kind of, it has to be cheesy in a certain kind of way for that, I feel. The CRV that really bothers me now we're on a tangent of a tangent is the like 2007 era CRV where I will put a photo of it in the show notes. But the way that the back window, if you just oh, go to like 2000, awful. yeah, the back window curves in a certain way, but awful. then the back window, the like, the hatch curves in a different way yeah. and it seems like it was like two designers didn't talk to each other <laughs> <laughs> well we keep bringing up cars that i have something to do with and so, <laughs> you had to do that no but the current crv there is one next door to me at my sister-in-law's house and i so i've driven it quite a bunch and it is just a super underpowered car it's it's 
it's just really frustrating to drive. It's comfortable, but it's it's not fun to drive in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I was. I mean, my first car was a Honda, so I was kind of have emotional. Yeah association with the brand and they were very reliable i drove it drove it to 320,000 340,000k which was you know to get assigned to me that's a lot yeah yeah it's a decent amount and then and then i was thinking when we were going to buy our first like kind of as adults car uh karen and i i was like predisposed to be like oh well maybe it should be a honda and so i was excited to try i did i what i wanted of course was a wagon but it's like well okay maybe i'll give this here a shot and it just didn't didn't capture our hearts that's that's a little bit sad yeah if i like the idea of of course if they had had a honda wagon that would have been really cool then (laughs) everybody would have been like look at that really stylish person i think i'm gonna try to find a a 1997 daiwu either i don't know either a a lanos a laganza or a nubira to restore and really really lean in (laughs) and to get that that uh that cred to get that cred, car, really just, cred. just a, the Daiwu is really the, <laughs> the car I want to try. I just like the idea of a 2007 Honda CRV with the historical vehicle plates. Yeah, no, I love it. I'm yeah. super on board. Or a Durango. <laughs> the Dodge Durango. Yeah, that's that's special. What year did the, what was that Dodge Magnum? Is that the yeah, really, I know the really one you long, mean. Weird car. That was, when was, when did they introduce that? in 2008 so we're not that no. far away yeah we had a little bit more yeah we could time. do this yeah what and then actually the other one will be when can you get a historical vehicle for uh the pt cruiser <laughs> <laughs> uh the chevrolet pt cruiser oh you it was introduced in 2000 okay so if you were at the 20 if you're in one of the the uh, jurisdictions with the 20 year old collector plates you could get then it now you could do it now you could go in your pt cruiser get it been in a pt up. cruiser i think so it's not comfortable they're very small and narrow uh, yeah yeah also it, they're not not great the pt cruiser is interesting to me as like there were a lot of especially in that era and then it all kind of when 2008 came and the whole market sort of dried up and changed a lot. But in that era, in the mid-2000s, there's a lot of cars that were kind of made, like, almost like it seemed like as a stunt. Like, they were just <laughs> throwing stuff at the wall. Like, there's that, like, Plymouth the, the Prowler. A- the Aztec. Yeah, the Aztec. Like, where it's just, like, weird cars. And, like, on one hand, it was like, these are all terrible. But on the other hand, you, I sort of felt like, well, it's cool that they're trying stuff and that they can try stuff, right? Whereas, <laughs> compare that to now, and it's, it seems like if you work at a car company, it's very difficult not to just make of that specific lexus that became super popular like 10 years ago like it's just this small suv cubic sort of blob and that like you can go three to five inches in any direction and make like different lines on it but like basically Mm. anything that doesn't look like that is challenging it seems like for them to i mean i'm super bored with uh with car design right now in general yeah, I think my sense, though, like looking, especially, you know, some of the cars that are trying to like break it out and be more distinctive uh, like this. I, I think we were talking about the Ionic 5, which is looks like kind of like a concept car, but still fundamentally what its physical form is, is still very similar in shape to a lot of the other cars. And I think yeah, my that s- is a good looking car, though. It is a good looking car, but it's good looking not by it being like weirdly PT Cruiser shaped. And my no. my sense of that, and I haven't like really vetted this but i think it's that the safety regulations and then the aerodynamic 
requirements of making an electric car is like converging and just or a fuel efficient car is converging on certain shapes. And then mm. that like if you vary a lot from that, it makes the, either the safety or the range worse. Yeah, we need to have a breakthrough in so many ways in society right now. We're waiting for a breakthrough in battery density. Yeah. And at that point, I mean, then they could do kind of cooler designs again. But right now, I mean, you're just trying to squeeze out miles. Yeah. Well, and apparently like there's, you know, as we know, there's like so many things over the years that have gone away from cars because of aerodynamics, like, you know, uh, roof racks don't come standard on any cars anymore. Wipers are now like tucked in and yeah door handles are tucked in and they're trying to remove did we talk about we're trying to they're trying to remove side mirrors now yeah yeah they are trying it's so weird i think in the in the i don't know if you drove any cars like this but in like in the eu you can have cameras instead of uh yeah they they sell them on the e-tron you can get them on the audi e-tron yeah but i don't think in canada the united states that's allowed yet like just the law says oh you have to have side mirrors and we're like oh we have these side cameras and just the law hasn't been updated yet to Hmm. allow them um but uh that that's like you know saves whatever half a percent of drag and <laughs> i did see the car though but i was in europe so yeah <laughs> that proves proves nothing uh were you well all right we should <laughs> we should probably move on i'm feeling very whelmed right okay now. <laughs> so uh so fun fact the leaning tower of pisa has had many attempts to fix its lean almost all of those made it much much worse <laughs> so, this is follow-up from one this or is two times extended ago. follow-up yeah, yeah I, I think it was last episode maybe it was previous but we were discussing the millennium tower in san francisco mm-hmm. which is tilting and which they're currently working on and you mentioned that you thought that that some attempts to fix the tower the new tower of pisa might have actually made it worse mm-hmm. and you were so very right <laughs> i'm glad because i felt like this you just i think you just pre- immediately previously disproved one of my like urban legend claims like oh yeah, that's right the, yeah. about manhattan yeah yeah. yeah. So I, I, I wanted to see about this. So I looked into the history of the tower and it's actually kind of fascinating all around, I think. So the, the construction of the Leaning Tower of Pisa took place in three different stages and it took almost 200 years to build. Whoa. Yeah. Which is a long Talk time. Talk about project overage. Yeah, exactly. They were not whelmed. So the, <laughs> the initial foundations were laid in 1173. Okay. And by 1178, so five years later, work had started on the second floor, and that was when they noticed it was sinking. Yeah, and that's like a pretty small percentage of the goal height. That's right. The tower is many, <laughs> many stories tall. And the reason that it's that it sinks is because it's built on the site of an ancient river estuary. Mm. The ground is made up of water and silty sand. Yeah, I'm not an engineer, but it seems not great. <laughs> you literally are an engineer. Okay, well, not not an, I'm not a literal engineer. You're not a civic engineer. Yeah. But the foundation is also only three meters deep. So it was, it was just never going to work. <laughs> but at that point, construction stopped for almost a uh, hundred years. So they had this like tilty rotunda. Yeah. Just just like one and a little bit of stories. And that was probably because there was like a continuous series of battles and wars that the Republic mm. of Pisa was fighting with Genoa and Luca and Florence or whatever. But it actually saved the tower from destruction. Because hmm. it didn't exist. No, because that century let the soil settle underneath the tower. Oh, like they do now when they're building in like a silty area, they'll load up the soil. Yeah, so it, it just let it naturally compact. If they had kept building in the 1100s, it would have just collapsed. Huh, interesting. So in 1233, they, they kept building. And <laughs> this is one of my favorite things about this. In an attempt to deal with the tilt, the engineers, not like us, built the upper floors with one side taller than the other. 
Okay. In the hopes that that would like lean it back the other way. Like they're basically curving it. Yeah. So because of that, the tower is curved. Right. So, which is just like so awesome. And if you look at a picture now that you know this, you'll see the curve. It's it's pretty incredible. So c- construction lasted until roughly 1284, where it once again was paused for war-related reasons. But by this point, it was already tilting nearly three feet to the south. Right. So the, the, the seventh floor was completed in 1319, and the bell chamber was added in 1372. And the, the, the lean just grew a little bit every year. I see the curve now. There you go. It's once you see it, it's it, it's so obvious. But so as it leaned, of course, it increased in tourism and the fame grew. You know, yeah. One measurement from 1550 showed the top being 12 feet south of the base, eh. which seems to me like a lot. Yeah. So, but that gets us to the attempts to fix it. So, in 1838, an architect was given permission to excavate the base, mm-hmm. a portion of which had had sunk into the ground. Sure. And as he dug, water literally came spouting up and the tower moved a few inches south. Right. <laughs> so they're like, okay, maybe stop. Maybe don't do that anymore. Yeah, let's not do that. Then then in 1934, Benito Mussolini, which you just know this is gonna, mm-hmm. you know, this is going in interesting directions, decided that the tower wasn't masculine enough for a fascist <laughs> country. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just have plugged up into Mussolini's like <laughs> business, but I did not realize it was like important state business that everything be manly. <laughs> I mean, we shouldn't laugh. It it's awful, not funny, but, but like, like it's also like Jesus. Okay, pol- great, hilarious. Uh, okay, mm-hmm. so he demanded that a fix be found in the in the name of the honor of Italy. Wait, so was the lack of manliness the tower in general or the fact that it was tilty? The fact that it wasn't standing straight up, uh, upright, yes, erect, okay. fully erect yeah, as, a, okay. as a tower should be uh, to okay. really mm-hmm. go to the place that uh-huh. everyone was hoping I would avoid. Yeah. So the way that they attempted to fix it at that time was by drilling holes into the foundation and just pouring in 200 tons of concrete. Okay. Which led to the tower moving a few inches to the south. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, okay, let's stop. So... By 1964, the Italian government publicly announced that they wanted help with this. And in 1966, another drilling attempt was made, but that was also stopped when the tower started sinking. In 1985, they tried boring again, which also increased the lean. I don't know why they kept trying Yeah, it that. seems like at this point, maybe try a different thing. Yeah. So in 1992, plastic-coated steel tendons were built around the tower up mm. to the second floor to just, like, hold it. Hmm. Okay. And in 1993, a concrete foundation was built around the tower with counterweights on the north. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. And that fixed the tilt by about an inch. Ah. But it was very ugly. Well, yeah. So in 1995, they attempted to replace those counterweights with uh, underground cables. That seems like a more modern engineering approach. Yeah. So engineers froze the ground with liquid nitrogen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. We're getting serious business now. But that caused a dramatic increase in the lean. No! <laughs> which, which led to the project being abandoned. Oh, man. That seems so clever. Like, okay, now it's really going to be solid. Yeah. So fi- finally, around 99, engineers started extracting soil from the north side. Right. And it was done very, very slowly. And only after they had put a cable harness up to hold the tower up. But by the end of 2001, it had been reduced by around a foot and a half. The lean got reduced by a the foot lean. and a half. Oh, wow. Yeah, bringing it back to where it was in 1838. Huh. And know. to do that, they had to remove 70 metric tons of soil. 
Yeah, but I mean, like considering like the liquid liquid nitrogen stuff, that seems like a pretty straightforward thing. <laughs> yeah, they did it really, really, really slowly. I think that sure. was the key. By 2008, engineers announced the tower had been stabilized to the point that it had stopped moving for the first time in its history. And it is currently believed that it should be stable in that position for at least the next 200 years. Seems like enough. But then they'll have carbon nano stuff. Yeah, they'll try liquid nitrogen again. So (laughs) so I found some fun, very small sub facts while I was researching this. Okay. So uh, between 1589 and 1592... Galileo apparently dropped two cannonballs of different masses from the tower to prove that their speed of descent was mm. independent of their mass, mm-hmm. testing the law of free fall. So that's pretty cool. Can you, I mean, that was a while ago. Can yeah. you just go up the tower? Like, is that a thing people can do? I don't know. If anyone, if any fun factors out there are in Italy and currently near the Tower of Pisa, uh, let us know if you can get up there. Probably closed for uh, pandemic reasons, but let us know. I just assume the only thing that they let you do was pose near it and pretend you were holding it up. And pretend you're holding it up. I actually think if you don't do that, you get a fine. Yeah, it's like part of the requirements. Yeah. Historical. Uh, During World War II, the Allies suspected that the Germans might be using the tower as an observation post. Okay. And a sergeant was sent to confirm the presence of German troops. Okay. But he was so overwhelmed by the beauty of the tower that he didn't order an artillery strike, which saved it from destruction. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Hmm. thank you to that sergeant for the fact that there's still a leaning tower of Pisa. Hmm. And finally, and and this is something that I hadn't thought of, but the minute I read it, I was like, oh, wait, what about that? What? There have been at least four strong earthquakes that have Mm. hit the region the tower is in since 1280. And as we know, the tower survived all of them. Sure. And people were wondering about that for a really long time. There's like 500 years where no one knew why that was true. But they figured it out in 2018 when they discovered that the softness of the ground, the the actual problem that causes the tower to lean in the first place, makes it impervious to the uh, m- the motions of earthquake ground, like the, the vibrations of earthquake ground motions. Like it doesn't resonate because of the softness and the weight of the tower on the softness. It just doesn't resonate with the movement of the earth. Oh, interesting. So I, I hear about like soil liquefaction, like often when you have soft soil, yeah. then an earthquake, it can liquefy and things can sink into it. But it sounds like it's already liquid. So Yeah. So somehow it's like perfectly balanced where, you know, it, it is or it was falling to the ground, but it wasn't going to be affected by an earthquake. Huh. Yeah. Uh, well, that's good to know. It seems like they I, I would have figured that they would not be still making like meaningful progress on Leaning Tower of Pisa engineering projects in the last like 20 years but it sounds like they're they they have been yeah, yeah. they're making yeah. They're figuring it out and we'll get to enjoy it i mean i i it never really ranked that highly on my things that i got i things i have to see um but then this thing of being this person being struck so emotionally by its beauty and the fact that Mussolini didn't like it and thought, didn't think it was manly enough now i kind of want to see it <laughs> yeah but i mean you're gonna pay the fine right yeah, I think I'd rather pay the fine than pretend to hold it up. <laughs> I, just, I, I don't think I can do it. I could do the taking the pictures of the people pretending to hold it up at the wrong angle, but I yeah. don't think I can. I don't think oh, yeah, I that's, can. A, that's a classic. <laughs> I think I'll just pay the money and then I don't have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they understand. <laughs> they need some money to pay for all that uh, dirt removal. That probably cost a pretty penny. And the, they're paying off the liquid nitrogen still. <laughs> that's right. They're still paying. That's right. (laughs) 
Are you, are you sipping a warm or a cold beverage? I've got a cold beverage. I have a uh, beer, an English mild wow. style beer. A beer? Yeah, and it's um, from a brewery here in Vancouver called Brassneck that makes fine beers, and they are kind of known for their big imperial hangover-inducing type <laughs> of beers. And, uh, you know, since the baby is born, and really even the first baby, that became less appealing to me. Um, but then they have a couple beers that they still do a really good job of in the like four to five percent range. Um, and this is one of them. And in the liner notes for it, it sort of makes fun of you for being boring, but I don't care because it's delicious. And it's, you know, it's <laughs> to someone who drinks like kokanee or whatever, this would be way too flavorful and way off palate. Right. But mm. compared to the like imperial face punching bubble pop monster it's not you know. well, how how often do you drink a beer i would say probably maybe four times a week oh okay yeah uh-huh it's kind of one of my go-tos i i went through a huge uh whiskey based drink sure phase and uh for many years that was like my go-to um, and then maybe, I don't know if it coincided with spending more time at home and the kids being born, but beer and wine, I've kind of come back home to beer and wine and doing, <laughs> uh, red wine and dark beer as my kind of defaults. All right. Drinking. Yeah. yeah. I'm surprised you're surprised that I would drink beer. I, I, yeah. I don't know why I, I, I don't have a good reason. I, uh, I drink very little. Hmm. Uh, that did not used to be true. I, I mean, I was never a huge drinker, but I, I, I drink so little at this point that it's totally reasonable for me to say that I don't drink. Mm, okay. I do drink. I had a drink last night, but I drink very, very, very infrequently. I think um, often when someone hears I don't drink, they mean like that you oppose, like that right. you are kind of strict about it, as opposed to you don't usually drink. Yeah, I just extremely rarely, like when you have like a, a form from the doctor's office or something, like I, I, I can put down zero. Right, because it's like how many times a week do you drink? And you can say zero times a week. Yeah. The easy right, in the way that I would say like four times a week. Right. Uh, but I will say that uh, while I was living in the Europe, um, I did drink more beer hmm. than I do at home, primarily because there was beer around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, but I, But I'm like a... I'm I'm a German and Mexican, which is essentially German beer guy. So if I'm going to drink a beer, it's going to be something like a Pilsner or a yeah. kind of a lighter beer. Uh, but uh, or like, you know, I don't know what else. But yeah, I guess a lager. Is that a light beer? I don't know. Yes, a lager yeah. is definitely a light beer. The types of beers that you're talking about, like a Mexican, like a Corona is a lager. Yeah, you know, Pacifico or yeah. Tecate or something like that. Uh, and, and then I also enjoy, as you know, a, a quality whiskey. Mm-hmm. I just don't do it very often. I, again, not, not for any particular reason. I just don't. I don't know why. I've been drinking less in rounder times, as I alluded to, for a particular reason, which is uh, once my I kind of lost most of my control of as to when I would get up in the morning. <laughs> it's a game changer. It changes everything. I had not realized, I would have said, well... Three beers doesn't really make me 
I would say four beers was when I would get hungover. Mm. Was previously what I would say. Mm. And then I was like, well, you know, at two, I'm a little bit rougher on the images. And then when the baby's born, I'm waking up at six, seven in the morning. <laughs> and I was like, after two beers, I can totally feel, I feel worse. I'm more tired. I'm more sore the yeah. next day. Um, and every once in a while I have one and then I'm kind of like, ah, I feel like I'm just, I'm a little bit duller the next day. Um, but the, so I've become much more constrained in almost always having one. Which is yeah. not the cool thing to do, but <laughs> I don't think that if if you're uh, in our age range, I don't think the cool thing is what you're trying to do when it comes to drinking. Did you know? Mm -hmm. You maybe would know this, although you're like even you're like a generation. We're talking about like the generations of cool and like Gen X and millennials and stuff like that. That now uh, the Gen Z crowd, the like teenagers and early twenties, mm -hmm. um, are like really actively and sometimes quite hilariously making like memes, making fun of millennials for being old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, time passes. So there was someone on our Slack that was like complaining that their younger sibling who is like a Gen Z mm. was complaining that she was a chug. It's like, oh, she yeah. was a total chug. Chuggy. Yeah. She's too chuggy because she liked the, you know, I don't know, things that are actually young things to me. <laughs> you know, the thing about <laughs> but the, she's too this, old this chuggy thing, yeah, which I do know about, uh -huh. is that it feels like a word I'm not supposed to say. It's, it feels a little... <laughs> it feels inappropriate. It feels yeah. like I'm yeah. I'm saying something wrong. Uh -huh. and I don't like it. And uh, and I also do not plan to be the, uh, the, 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 you know, the adult who's trying to who's desperately trying to stay relevant by using the kids words but i did have this conversation with my wife the other day where she was like well what i don't know what the kids are saying and i was like i don't either and i don't care but i will know in like 10 to 12 years mm, yeah because they I will, will be care. totally that like whatever they'll they'll be in my house cool. okay boomer except <laughs> yeah, it'll be yeah. like the one or two generations past version of that. But. Yeah. I mean, I'm an exennial, so who the hell yeah. knows what they're going to say, but yeah, but it'll be whatever you don't want them to say. <laughs> I don't even know what generation that I have a fact about this at some point in the future, but I don't even know what generation my son is part of. Mm, I think that he's not quite named yet. Yeah. Cause I don't even think he's part of maybe he's generation alpha. Yeah. Generation alpha is like the, the least, or like that's like the only thing I've heard anyone sort of call it, but I don't think it's like well accepted that that's because like often the generations will have these placeholder names, mm -hmm. but then once they kind of get some more identity or we can sort of reason about them or the cultural context in which they're growing up maybe becomes more meaningful than often they the name right because name. millennials were at one point called Gen Y yeah and then I think they were called Gen something else gen next or something like that yeah, yeah they kind of dig around with it eventually they give up and settle on some nonsense name that doesn't really actually matter what it is it's just <laughs> some way for us to make fun of people and nothing like of, making fun of people that's that's what it's all about <laughs> isn't heard. it but it is it is kind of interesting to at least to me maybe more so than you to try and at least be self-aware of what are the things that i think of as true because of the generation I grew up in and mm -hmm. the things I was surrounded by in my formative years. Mm -hmm. And what are the things that I think are true? Because I've actually come to those through either their 
personality traits of mine that led me to that or that they're like hard one it's hard one knowledge wait why is this less true of me well you're just saying like i don't care about the new the kids or whatever the oh i, I just don't care about what this what hip terms they're using yeah i don't care about the hip terms but i do i mean i guess i i sort of care about that only to the degree that i like i feel like having an understanding of where the generations after me like how they think differently and yeah communicate that's and, very interesting yeah that's interesting yeah, yeah so we're yeah, on definitely. the same page yeah yeah i think so. i just don't want to be the guy saying chuggy that's all i'm saying <laughs> i think that's probably fine. 